Hi, this is Joel Knox from the Vineyard Church in Brenham, Texas. I'm so glad that you're interested in our podcasts. Our media is available to you free of charge, and it always will be. But if you'd like to help us out, you can go to our website, vineyardbrenham.org, and make a donation there. We'd appreciate it very much. Anyway, thanks again for stopping by, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Have you ever heard that song before? In case you didn't catch the words, put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. Go out in the car and change the tire. Wash my socks and sole my old blue jeans. Fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers. Say that a couple times fast. And boil me up another pot of tea. Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. That song was actually written by the poet, singer, songwriter, cartoonist, screenwriter, and author of children's books, Shel Silverstein. It's interesting to note, I, I learn so much whenever I'm preparing for, for sermons, but he also wrote a song called A Boy Named Sue for a country artist by the name of Johnny Cash. might remember that one. Put Another Log on the Fire was recorded by outlaw country artist Tom Paul Glacier in 1975 and became his all-time biggest hit. Imagine that. It appeared on the album Tom Paul Sings the Songs of Shel Silverstein. And i got to tell you, I've never heard that one before, and I went out and I looked for it. You can listen to it if you want to on YouTube, but I don't think you can find it anywhere else. Now, when you watch this video and you listen to this song, I don't think that's the kind of love and devotion that God was looking for whenever he told Moses in the Old Testament that the fire on the altar must be kept burning and it must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood. Now when we look at this verse in its context, we see that the altar that God was referring to was the one where the Israelites laid out their sacrifices for atonement. This covered their sin for a year. And this was how they they became right before God. Now the fire on this altar had great significance for Israel And by God's instruction, it could not go out. And there are a few reasons. Number one, the fire originated with God. It was lit in His presence, and therefore, it, by His word, it could not go out. That perpetual flame, it was symbolic of Israel's continual worship. That flame, that was what their worship was supposed to be like. It was supposed to be like that fire that just never went out. Like the fire at the tomb of the unknown soldier. That fire is not supposed to go out as we remember those and their sacrifices. The eternal flame represented Israel's continual dependence and need for reconciliation with God. Now, I think we all know the work that's involved in keeping a fire going, don't we? If you've ever been at a campsite, you know that you've got to go gather the firewood before you start the fire. Because if you wait until you run out of firewood, then you're going to lose your fire, and then you have to start all over. Now, at the same time, we also know that if there's too much 
fuel for a fire. I mean, that's why we don't light fires whenever there's a no burn on, because if you have a burn ban, that's because anything can set off a fire. And before you know it, you have a wildfire on your hands. And I think we've seen in the news a little bit about what's been going on in Montana and, and up in the, the Northwest. It, it's it, simply because everything's dry. There's just too much fuel there. And, and a fire just will continue to burn until you put it out. And in Proverbs chapter 30, the, the writer re- referred to fire briefly when he said, there are three things that are never satisfied. Four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land, which is never satisfied with water, and fire, which never says enough. I think we all can agree with that. Now, how appropriate a metaphor for the living God who describes himself as jealous for our love and for our devotion. Now, when we talk about jealousy... The way we understand jealousy, you know, you kind of get this picture of a green face, maybe. That's, you know, it, the motivation is not a, a true motivation. But when God says that he is jealous for our love, he, he really wants that. It's, it's a deep desire that's not motivated by any, any kind of manipulation. It's not any kind of thing that, that, it, that he's trying to make us do something against our will. He wants our love and our devotion given freely to him. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus fulfilled and filled up the requirements of the law. His death exceeded the minimum requirement of the law and paid the debt in full so that we could be reconciled to the Father once and for all. There's no need for the slaughter of of cattle or goats or sheep. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that paid everything that the law demanded. As the Apostle Peter wrote, Christ died for sins once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And now because our debt of sin has been paid, we can offer up a sacrifice of praise that flows out of gratitude to God for everything that He's done for us. You see, He's worthy of our worship and of all our praise. As the writer of Hebrews says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice, the fruit of our lips that confess His name. And just like that flame on the altar, our praise goes up continually before Him as we confess Jesus with our lips and we proclaim Him through our lives. We start seeing ourselves as forgiven children of God who are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And whenever we meet with him, just like the men who walked along the road to Emmaus, whenever they didn't recognize Jesus, and when he left them, they were saying, weren't our hearts burning within us? Because we've made contact with the living God. I want us to see this morning that our adoration, our worship, that fuels the fire of our transformation. We become like what we worship. Think about that just for a minute. Whenever we adore something, our desire is filled up in in that thing, right? And so if we get kind of wrapped up in our stuff, we're kind of 
wrapped up in our stuff. And our lives revolve around that. And then we, we become very protective of those things. But this is why worship is so important. God's presence transforms us, and our worship brings us into his presence. You've heard it said before, God inhabits the praises of his people. Whenever we worship God, it's like we're creating an atmosphere where he can work in. And that's why we like to lead worship before we move into any other part of the service because we invite the Holy Spirit to come and we're creating that atmosphere so he can come and, and touch us and meet us in prayer and whenever we, we have, have needs and we need ministry, that the Holy Spirit can be there with us. And as we continue to worship, we see ourselves becoming like the people that he originally created us to be. We become people who are bonded together in covenant love, who truly love God and each other. And don't we all want to be people like that, who love deeply without caring about what all the exteriors are? I believe there's no greater example of God's covenant love on this earth than in our marriages. If transformation comes as the result of adoration, worship, then as we are being formed together, it stands, no re- it stands to reason that through ma- the marriage relationship, we can bring great glory to God. We can actually glorify God through our marriage. I know some of you might be looking side-eyed to your, your spouse. It, it, it's okay. It's okay. We're, we're going to talk about this a little bit. If only we would see it that way. But too often we don't. Just like the song, we go into our relationships seeking to get our own needs met and get everything we want with no thought for our spouse and what they might want for themselves. And we come into the relationship with our list of demands and expectations. Well, my wife is going to do this, and my wife is going to do that, and my wife... Guys, come on. And if that person doesn't satisfy us, then we want to get rid of them. Well, maybe not publicly, but, you know, it starts creating a distance. Does that sound familiar? Or am I just just making stuff up up here? The prophet Malachi spoke to this very attitude when he prophesied to those who returned from captivity in Babylon. He said in in Malachi chapter 2, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and you wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings nor accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? Is it because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her? Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now when we look at the text today, we need to see that it was no accident that Jesus went from talking about adultery to addressing divorce. Now just imagine for a second what would happen in our relationships if we could address unresolved anger, contempt, resentment, obsessive lust, and fantasized desires. 
I think we know the answer to that question. Our relationships would be a lot more healthy. And that said, just as adoration fuels transformation, we need to understand that contempt fuels the fires of our destruction. If we harbor resentment and contempt, it corrupts our souls and it robs us of true love and relationship. Not just with each other, but with God. That anger keeps building within us and it's fueled by the pain of our unmet needs. As the honorable... Reverend Sleepy Ray says, pain left unraveled and bound up tight, all in fear that others might not think of us as right. I don't know if you know that guy. You see, we often add shame to our emotional laundry list. I mean, who wants to admit that there's so much ugly stuff on the inside? I I, I sure don't. And then when we add in the fear of rejection, it only makes us retreat further into this self-styled prison that we've made for ourselves. A recent study of of the Barna Research Group found that 11% of the adult population is currently divorced. 25% of adults have had at least one divorce during their lifetime. Divorce rates among conservative Christians are significantly higher than other faith groups, as well as atheists and agnostics. Why is that? According to George Barna, in their research, we rarely find substantial differences between moral behavior of Christians and non-Christians. It's sad. But see, that's really the story, isn't it? We're often content to have the trappings of what we call the kingdom life instead of the life itself. You know, we liked that you know, we can show up and, and uh, put on our Sunday best and put on that Sunday morning face as long as we don't have to get into what went on during the week. Right? We might look like we got it all together, but we haven't allowed true transformation to take its hold on us. And this is why Jesus said over and over again, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom life. We can't receive everything the kingdom offers while we're still hanging on to the things that have us bound and steal from us. We still have yet to discover what it means to be free. So the question we need to ask this morning is, which fire are we feeding? Is it the fire of transformation or the fire of destruction? I want to stop here and say a quick little prayer and uh, just ask the Holy Spirit to come. I know we have already, but I just want to just to help just get my words the way that He wants them so that, that uh, hopefully that we all can get something out of this today. Father, I ask You to come and use me to say what You want to say today. God, I want to lift up, not tear down. And I I pray that your spirit would come and and move in us and bring about the transformation that you want us to experience. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, 
It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now in the Middle East, a man was considered righteous after he found fault with his wife to give her a written statement that declared that she had been divorced. It allowed her to defend herself against the charge of of adultery and allowed her to be legally married again. Now, while men often divorced their wives for any and every reason, the legal grounds for divorce were not so cut and dry. Religious leaders often disagreed on what was acceptable under the law. In Matthew chapter 19, we we read where some Pharisees came to see if they could stump the teacher on this touchy subject, on the matter of a proper divorce. In Matthew 19, verse 3, I don't have the text up there for you, but they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, once again, just because a person who does what is permissible by law does not mean the person's heart was right. That's what Jesus was talking about on the Sermon of the Mount. Divorce was never God's intent for marriage. God intended marriage to be the union of two people that would be deeper than the union of parents, children, or any other human relationship. They become one flesh, one natural unit made out of two, building one life together, whole and complete. Just as Jesus said, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, we put another log on the fire when we resist the will of God for our marriage. The prophet Malachi said emphatically in his day, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Despite the invention of the no-fault divorce, no one gets out of marriage unscathed. Divorce is considered sin because it misses the mark. That's what the word sin means. It misses the mark of what God intended. It was never His intention for marriage. It destroys the people who are left to deal with it and the lost hopes and dreams of, of both adults and children. That was not God's intent. So then why did Moses give that command to the, that the Pharisees referred to? Just as Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I can't think of anything worse to be told than to say, 
My heart is hard. How about you? You've got a hard heart. What does that mean? You're not sensitive to anything. Your, your heart has become calloused. You know, like the, the calluses I have on the end of my fingers, I, I can't really feel anything after I get through playing guitar. There's no feeling there. That means that my heart is like my fingers. I, I don't have any feeling. I, I, I'm, I don't have any compassion. There's no love. There's no desire. And how does a person even recover from a hard heart? And I understand that anything can be forgiven. And, and it, it's not to say that forgiveness is easy because it's not. It's not, especially among those we know so well. How many of you have looked at your spouse and said, I, 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 I know that if, if I told them about this, I know how they would respond. They're going, they're going, they, I can't tell them this because I, I know what they're going to do. I know how my spouse is going to, going to respond. I know how they're going to act toward me. Did you ever give them the chance to respond? Well, no, because I know how they're going to, going to respond. You see, we, we think we know and we, that's where contempt starts to creep in. As Aesop, is it Aesop? Aesop? The philosopher says, familiarity breeds contempt. We think we know them so well and we just don't give them the benefit of the doubt. When we get to the point of holding contempt for our spouse, it's next to impossible to forgive them. We can barely give them the benefit of the doubt, much less grace and mercy. Yet even under these circumstances, some people just decide, well, I'm just going to gut it out for the sake of God's law. You know, I want to be right before God. And that's no different than settling for the righteousness of the Pharisees. Others want to gut it out for the kids. It's noble, but it also misses the mark. And what we don't demonstrate, a loving relationship looks like to the world. This we demonstrate what dysfunction looks like in our home. Isn't that wonderful? I've heard the stories of, you know, mom and dad living on separate ends of the house. And they, they you know, whenever the kids came home, they, they would move together in the room. And, you know, and just to give the, that resemblance that everything was okay. And it wasn't. And when it comes to us guys... We're kind of like ogres. You guys remember Shrek? Remember him? How, how, how did he describe himself? Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. You get it? We both have layers. For us guys, the idea of peeling back our emotional layers to expose what's underneath is very difficult and painful. But if we want to have intimacy with our spouse, and have open communication, it's necessary to do that hard work of building a better relationship. You see, we put on a, another log on the fire when we resist opening up in our relationships. So you see, when things get hard, the answer's not divorce. Instead, it's time to buckle down and do what it, the work that it takes to get your marriage back from the breaking point. 
That might involve seeing a counselor, talking to a pastor or a mentor, seeking out some kind of help before it's too late. If we ever find ourselves at the end of the road, we need to understand that Jesus admits that divorce is certainly permissible, but it's not God's ideal. Verse 32 says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Jewish society, the consequences of divorce were devastating for the woman. Her life was ruined. The man fared far better. Now, he might have had to endure some financial loss or, you know, the awkward relationships of the ex-wife's family. But the woman was left with only three possibilities. She might find a place in the home of a generous relative, maybe living like a servant. She might find a man who might marry her or would consider her, even so, as, as damaged goods. And she might live the rest of her life as a prostitute. It's not a lot of options. Now, times have certainly changed. Divorce doesn't carry the same stigma it did in Jesus' day, much less in the past three or four decades. Women have a lot more options available to them than in times past. And it seems in recent years, men have actually found themselves defenseless in divorce court. Losing everything. But it's the same issue. Regardless of who initiates the divorce procedure, unresolved anger and contentment over time will eat away at the foundation of a relationship that's never protected. Now, and I understand, you know, and, and I know that some of you are divorced here this morning. Let's not do that again. Right? You find a relationship that, that you love and the person, you respect the person you're with, they respect you, by all means, stay together. Work it out. Don't get to the point where you can't work it out. We need to protect our relationships. We put another log on the fire when, resist, we, when we resist forgiveness for our spouse, ourselves, and others. Forgiveness is the hallmark of the Christian life. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see, no sin is so horrible that a marriage cannot survive it, including adultery. Many marriages have survived and proved that love covers a multitude of sin. Marriage cannot survive under the weight of contempt and unforgiveness. It cannot. It will eventually squeeze the life out of everything that's left, leaving no option but just to let it die. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you're, you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? We don't have to pack it in. There's always hope. 
That's what we talk about it in this Christian faith. There's always hope. As long as we don't give up. The late Dallas Willard said of marriage, a brutal marriage is not a good thing either. And we may resist any attempt to classify divorce as special, irredeemable form of wickedness, but it's not. It is sometimes the right thing to do, everything considered. Several years ago, Danelle and I were going through a difficult time in our marriage. We hurt each other and, and reciprocated again and again and again. One of our friends told us at one point, one day God will use all of this to help somebody out. I just got flat out mad. I told her I'm not interested in anything like that. I have no desire to help anybody else. I don't want to hear about anybody else's marital problems. I've got enough to deal with right now, and I don't, I'm sorry. I I have no desire to help anybody else else out. And, you know, the poor lady, she's just sitting across from us, and her eyes got about this big, and, you know. But in the years since that day, and it's been quite a few years ago, God changed my heart. Maybe that was a hard heart back then that just, Maybe it was a hurting heart, you know, that I was in the middle of it, and I just couldn't think about what, what it would be like to, to help anybody else. But I guess some of you know we just celebrated our 26th anniversary this past week. We made it. And, and I've noticed as we've gotten a little bit older that every now and then, you know, people, will, will, they see that we're having an anniversary, and... And they'll come around and they'll ask questions like, so what's the secret to your marriage? You know, every now and then I fight that. I I don't want to help anybody. Are you kidding? And whenever they first started asking me this stuff, I'd kind of respond with a joke like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever. But over time, my response has pretty much been everything that I've been saying here this morning. You know, we have a choice to make. And, you know, and it's not like, you know, that it, it's, it's almost proverbial where you're talking about stoking a fire. You know, the, 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 uh, I think it was a Chinese proverb, you know, which dog gets bigger? Well, that's the one that you feed. Well, it's the same thing about, you know, our, our relationships. I mean, do we allow God to, to transform us? Or do we allow our resentment and our stuff to destroy us? That's the choice. And I know we, we all sitting here, we understand that marriage and the nuclear family are the, the foundation of our civil, civil society. Everywhere you look, the concept of marriage, just the very concept of marriage and family are under attack from all sides. Like the psalmist said many years ago in Psalm chapter 11, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's what we're seeing. 
It's a powerless feeling to see what's happening in our society. But when we continue to read in that psalm, we see exactly how we are to respond to this outright assault that has been unleashed on marriages and families all across this country of ours. Verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. You see, God is in control. He's not surprised by what we're seeing right now. None of this has taken Him off guard. And he, this is an opportunity for God's kingdom to break in and heal our land. And I say this morning that we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus to see this healing come. So this morning, if, if you're here, um, let, let's stand. I, I'm, we're, we're running out of time. I went and ran a little bit longer than I'd like to, but... But when we, when we started feeling like God was leading us back into ministry, we, Danelle and I were talking about it. And, you know, God has to use what, what we've been through for something. And we've moved past that place where it's like, yeah, I'm not, not really interested in helping anybody else. But I really feel like this morning we need to pray for our, our marriages. We need to pray for our families. I'm, without a doubt, I'm sure there's some of you here this morning that either you know somebody or maybe you're experiencing a hard time in your, your marital relationship. And I, I, I think this is the time that we need to gather around and, and show God's love and support and strengthen our families and strengthen our marriages. So I want to pray for marriages this morning. I want to pray for protection and perseverance. I want to pray for marriages that are in crisis. And I want to pray for those who've been hurt by divorce and, and the betrayal and, and all the stuff that comes out of that. I, and, and I know that it's probably opening up a can of worms, but God knows what's down in that can. And He wants to heal us. He wants to set us free. So if you're here this morning and any of this stuff... You know, we're, we're, we've been talking about a, all this relationship stuff. But if you're here this morning and, and you just, if you would like prayer, can you just, where you're at, just, just, just raise your hand.